0: And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Come, let us return and visit the brethren in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp contention so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This week has been a harsh one for campaign rhetoric, and sadly, I think I could have made that same statement pretty much any week this year so far, and I think that we have more that's to come. I think we can expect from all the parties involved more interrupting one another, more sarcasm, more name-calling. It's a sad time when we've seem to have lost our sense of civility and respect for one another. Now, we tend to view it differently uh, when it's a party, a political party that we support versus the other party. We can appreciate when our political party is pointed and unafraid to speak the truth. But we tend to describe the same type of comments from the other side as being rude, offensive, inappropriate. All of that kind of language toward and about one another really can be described with the the adjective you've probably heard, snarky. Now, snarky is not a new word. It's been around for a couple couple hundred years, but it certainly has had a resurgence of late. And interestingly enough, it's been used in positive and negative ways. People can appreciate when their party or candidate is snarky in their returns, uh, but they don't appreciate from the other side. Now, when we look at that word snarky, it really is an adjective that talks about sarcastic, rude comments, disrespectful. Now, uh, it's sad when we tend to admire someone who makes those kind of zingers or comebacks uh, to something that's been said about them. I think it's important for us to look at the antonyms of snarky. If you look up the opposite words to snarky, you're going to find patient, kind, gentle, and loving. What are the kind of responses that we feel called to give in a time of conflict? What are the type of attitudes that we want to encounter in the world? We're called to something better. Last fall, I read the book, Love Your Enemies by Arthur C. Brooks. It's a great book and I highly encourage it to people to read. Uh, the full title is actually Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. And that came from a quote he made in a speech at Harvard University in 2017, where Brooks said, uh, Arthur Brooks uh, said that our, uh, the problem with American politics in our country is not an anger problem, but a contempt problem. It's not an anger problem. It's a problem with contempt. Now, contempt is anger, but it's mixed with disgust. It implies that the other person is, is less than. It's not worth the time they are um, to be cast aside. And we are called to something better than that. We are called to treat each other with respect And to remember that the love that God has for all people, no exceptions. We are called to love and respect even in times of conflict, even in times that the other side might not be so loving and respectful toward us. We can't lower ourselves to the level of contempt because when we do, we lower ourselves. Now, if we are going to find times that we argue and disagree with our family and friends. Surely there will be times that we argue and disagree with coworkers, acquaintances, and neighbors. And we're called to love our neighbors, no exceptions. How can we exhibit those attributes of patience and kindness and gentleness and being a loving person even in the midst of conflict? This morning, I'm bringing to a close our sermon series, Love Your Neighbor, No Exceptions. Now, the sermon series is ending. It was to introduce the theme for the entire year. We are committing ourselves to love our neighbors, no exceptions. I think when you read scripture, this is a theme that the Bible wants in our lives for all of time. We want to be able to do this, but it's especially difficult when we find uh, times that are tense and emotions start to flare up. How can we maintain our cool and not lower ourselves to a level where we are calling one another names or making attacks personal? A great example of lives lived in this way is from the uh, Book of Acts in the New Testament, the story of Barnabas and Paul. Now, they had gone on one missionary journey together and they were about to embark on a second one, but Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark and Paul was dead set against it because John Mark had left them early in the first missionary journey. And so he said, Absolutely not. Barnabas would absolutely not go on the journey without. Uh, John Mark and so they parted ways and there were two missionary journeys now it wasn't a simple decision they didn't decide uh, compromise and say two trips uh, will be better no it says that there was such a sharp contention that arose between them that they parted ways in other words they couldn't uh, they were so at odds they couldn't travel together Paul went on the journey he was planning with Silas and Barnabas took John Mark. But the way they would handle that disagreement would affect ministry later on because they didn't uh, put each other down, they didn't hold each other in contempt, they held each other in high regards and later on John Mark would join with Paul on his missionary journeys and that's because of the respect they had for one another. We can live that way, even in the midst of turmoil and arguments. There are three things that I want to discuss this morning that can help us love our neighbors, uh, no exceptions. First is what we need to remember, we can't focus on winning. When we focus on winning, what we're really doing is also focusing on them losing, It starts to limit our mindset. We start to turn inward and we want to win at all costs. We're thinking of what we're going to say as our response, and it's all about the attack and counterattack. When we start to limit issues to either us or them, we have really minimized the complexity of most issues. If you think of a light switch, it's either on or off. But few issues are really that way, that simple. When you take complex issues and then you bring into them a, a variety of human experiences, they're going to get more complicated. Why would we ever limit issues to us and them, to winning and losing, to right and wrong, to good and bad? And yet that's our tendency to make it uh, us versus them. And we, we limit the possibilities in that situation. It's easy to kind of downgrade into a kind of a contemptuous response. We attack the person instead of really listening and engaging with their ideas. And when we do that, contempt limits any possibility of reconciliation it limits any possibility of, of relationship at all. It also blinds us to possibilities that might exist beyond one truth. It might show us that there are different truths available. It might show the possibility for a better outcome than either party could have decided on. In this Example between Barnabas and Paul, they had a sharp contention, a sharp argument. Paul was unyielding, and so it fell to Barnabas to decide what to do about John Mark. And the way they would handle this uh, argument, this contention, would affect their ministry. If they had run each other down, the early church would have heard about it, and it would have minimized all of their witness. But because they decided to part ways, ministry was actually expanded. Paul took Silas and sailed on to his uh, planned journey, and um, Barnabas took John Mark, and he sailed on to the island of Cyprus. Now, it's easy for us to read this familiar scripture and boil it down to uh, two sides of one issue— One is good, one is bad. Barnabas obviously was good because he was going to be the son of encouragement to John Mark. That was the name that the disciples gave Barnabas, meaning the son of encouragement. That was his role. He's the good guy, always willing to help somebody. Paul, obviously, is the bad guy in this story. We read him as making the wrong choice, and yet why would we limit this issue in this way? Maybe it's better to come at it, as we should with conflict, with an open mind and give Paul the benefit of the doubt. When they went on the trip together, it's understandable that um, Barnabas was with Paul. He had introduced Paul to the disciples. If you remember, uh, Paul was originally known by Saul, and he had been persecuting the Christians, throwing them in prison and standing by affirming when they were martyred and Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus and he had a conversion experience and now he had become a follower of Christ but you can understand why the the disciples were reluctant to take Paul into their inner circle because they knew him to be the one who had hunted them down it was Barnabas who had vouched for Paul Barnabas said, if you believe in me, believe in Paul. And now Barnabas was going to Paul and said, if you believe in me, believe and trust in John Mark. And Paul turned him down. Of course, Paul is in the wrong in this scenario, right? Except that this is such a critical missionary journey. They were returning to all the early churches that had been established. These were faith communities in their infancy. And they were living in a world that was seeking to persecute them and full of all different types of religions. It was crucial on this missionary journey to focus on their needs, to strengthen them, to encourage them, to show them the way. You can understand why Paul didn't want to risk taking John Mark again. He had abandoned them on the first journey for whatever reason. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he didn't feel well. Maybe he was intimidated by the persecution. But early in the first journey, he had left them and gone back home. And it had caused them problems. They were shorthanded. It caused them all this additional time and effort to have to send him back home. And it probably affected their witness as well. Imagine what it would be like preaching to this new group of believers, telling them to trust in the love of Christ as their strength and guidance, all the while having to explain why one of the missionary leaders had gone home early. We can see why Paul didn't want to risk having to deal with John Mark again because he wanted to focus on the early churches those churches in a critical time and place, maybe he made the right choice. We can understand why Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. He believed in him. He saw potential in him. And he wanted to invest in that. We understand why that could have been the right decision. The way they handled it and treated one another, even though they parted company, it didn't de- Diminish either one's ministry. In fact, it expanded it. Instead of one missionary journey, there were two. More people were reached for Christ. When we will maintain respect for one another, we can find that the outcomes are probably going to be better than we could have imagined. The relationships will be better. In the past, we've often lifted up the example of John Wesley and George Whitfield, their friendship, as a way to handle conflict and still respect one another. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement, and um, Whitfield was a younger contemporary of his. They studied at Oxford together, and they were involved in the Holy Club together. This was a small group of, of young men that were dedicated to growing in their faith and serving and doing missions around the community. Uh, They were closer than brothers. But Whitfield and Wesley disagreed in their theology. Whitfield believed in predestination, which is the doctrine that says that before time began, God predetermined a portion of humanity to be saved no matter what. But that also meant that since it was only a portion to be saved, that left a portion that were never going to be saved no matter what. Well, Wesley disagreed with this doctrine vehemently. He believed in the grace of God and the gift of God to all of humanity in free will, our ability to accept that relationship that God offers to all of us. Now, even though they cared about one another, they didn't hold back in their theological arguments. John Wesley preached and published a sermon called Free Grace. And he discusses this idea of Whitfield's predestination. Predestination is a doctrine full of blasphemy. Of such blasphemy as I should dread to mention but that the honor of God will not suffer me to be silent. You represent God as worse than the devil, more false, more cruel, more unjust. This is the blasphemy for which, and here he has parentheses and says, However, I love the persons who assert it. I abhor the doctrine of predestination. Uh, Wesley doesn't mince his words it is very clear to see what he believes he says it outright when Whitfield responded in a letter to John Wesley and published it uh, it's a little softer around the edges but you can still get the underlying message I am sure I love you in the bowels of Jesus Christ and I think I could lay down my life for your sake But yet, dear sir, I cannot help strenuously opposing your errors upon this important subject because I think you oppose the truth as it is in Jesus. May the Lord remove the scales of prejudice from the eyes of your mind. I am persuaded that I shall see dear Mr. Wesley convinced of predestination, election, and everlasting love. And it often fills me with pleasure to think how I shall behold you casting your crown down at the feet of the lamb and filled with a holy blushing for opposing the divine sovereignty in this manner. Even though they were at complete opposite points on this theological doctrine, they never resorted to personal attacks. They cared for one another. In fact, when Whitfield was going on his missionary journey to the United States to Georgia, it came, he was about to leave right after Wesley printed and published this sermon on free grace. And still, Whitfield asked Wesley to care for his congregation in his absence. Whitfield requested that Wesley be the one who preached his funeral sermon. And in that sermon, Wesley spoke in the highest regards of Whitfield, of this incredible man of faith who had accomplished so much for the kingdom. Now, it's not just that they are a great example for how we can be passionate in our disagreement and yet still care and show respect for one another. It also shows that even though they parted ways, their ministry wasn't diminished by their. A conflict, it actually was multiplied. Wesley would give rise to the Methodist movement, and Whitfield was an incredible preacher and evangelist and integral to the revival that was happening in the United States. Incredible people of faith. It helps us to remember a quote that was given by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr where he said, let no man bring you so low as to cause, him, uh, cause you to hate him. Second, we are called to take the high road. Taking the high road means uh, not resorting to personal attacks or being sarcastic or demeaning or diminishing the other person in any way, to put their needs before our own. Now, for Barnabas and Paul, each of them, had to take the high road for ministry to happen. Even though they had such a sharp disagreement, they had to take the high road. Now, it wasn't the only disagreement they would have. Later on in Scripture, it is recorded that there was tension between Jewish believers and Gentile believers in one occasion. And Paul wrote of his disappointment in Barnabas's stance that he took in that argument meaning he was against Paul. But Paul nor Barnabas would ever lose their regard for the other. For Barnabas, he had a choice to make. Because Paul was so pointed, he wouldn't take John Mark. It was up to Barnabas to decide what to do. Now, in reality, I'm sure he wanted to go with Paul. He wanted to return and visit all the places they had been before to see their old friends And truthfully, even though Barnabas had been a believer longer than Paul, it was Paul that was the the natural leader. He was the gifted preacher, charismatic. His is the ministry we remember and are more familiar with all these years later, and it was the same then. Of course, Barnabas would have preferred to go with Paul, but that would have left John Mark out in the cold. And so instead of going on the journey he wanted to go on, he... He committed to John Mark and took him on a missionary journey starting by sailing to the island of Cyprus. And Barnabas would invest in John Mark. He would uh, support him and encourage him in the way that he did. And, And that would bear fruit because later on in life, John Mark would be with Paul on his missionary journeys. Paul had to take the high road because he probably never would have been able to reconcile with John Mark had it not been for his regard for Barnabas. And even John Mark had to take the high road. Too often we think that conflicts are just about the people who are debating back and forth, but there are so many others that are involved by those arguments, especially if it's someone who's being argued about. In this case, John Mark, can you imagine how embarrassed or upset he probably was in the first missionary journey to leave early? And then he probably summoned the strength and the courage to come back and ask to go on the second only to be rejected, and not just rejected, but so rejected by Paul that Paul was willing to do without the help of Barnabas in order that he didn't have to take John Mark as well. John Mark had to take the high road in order to come back and uh, admit his mistakes and come back and join with Paul on a future journey. And so through the encouragement of Barnabas and the discernment of Paul and the humility of John Mark, each of them would take the high road that enabled ministry to just expand On our trip to Kenya, Africa, one of the programs that I was really impressed with uh, were the programs where there were women's community groups. These women would uh, meet together to address different goals, one of them being banking. And so here when it starts off, you have a group of women living in poverty, pulling what extra money that they have, which obviously isn't very much when you're living in poverty. And then they would... Loan to one another uh, to help them improve their uh, family's life and the community's life. We told you about one of those situations. Rispa was a woman that her husband died of AIDS. He gave her the disease and he left her a widow with five young children. She went to one of these community groups and borrowed just a little money to, enough to buy a couple chickens and a goat. She worked hard and, and finally was able to pay that loan back. And over the years, she was able to take out more loans and she bought more goats and a cow and then a second one. Her life was transformed through that group. But can you imagine how difficult that community group would be? A group of women coming together and, and all of them living in poverty and having to reject some requests for money. Now, it's easy to say yes to someone in poverty, one of your friends, but what happens when you're telling one of your friends no? I'm sure there was, there's tension and awkwardness, and yet these women lived in a small community together. They saw each other every day, and, and probably that's the strength of what made it work. They were committed to their relationship above all. These were women of deep, profound faith. And they were committed not just to their own personal lives, they were committed to the group as a whole, to all of the families, to all of the community. And because of that, lives have been transformed, communities have been transformed by their work. We are called to take the high road in times of conflict. And one of the most important ways that we can do that is by listening. Now, when we're in a time of conflict, I'm not talking about just listening by being quiet when the other person talks. That's the base minimum that we should do. But if we're honest, if we're starting to get emotional and all worked up, we're not quiet in our minds. We're constantly interrupting their words with our thoughts because we're thinking about what our comeback is gonna be. We're thinking about our argument what I want to ask all of us is to practice listening, active listening, where we turn off our thoughts, our responses, and we really listen to what the other person is saying. We listen for their ideas. We listen for their hopes and their fears. We listen to know them. And if we're willing to do that, we might find that the outcome is better than we could have imagined. And third... We need to remember that we're called to love one another. In the book, Arthur Brooks interviewed Dr. John Gottman, and Gottman has dedicated his entire life to improving relationships. Over 40 years, he has been teaching and researching and counseling couples to help them improve their relationships. And he said that if he can spend an hour with a couple and see how they talk with each other and interact, he can tell with 94% accuracy whether that couple will divorce in three years. He said it has nothing to do with anger. Anger is not an indicator of breakup or divorce, he said. He said it has to do with the warning signs of contempt. He looks for ways that uh, they use sarcasm or hostile humor Or he looks for what he says is the worst of all, rolling the eyes. He said these are all little ways to communicate to the other person that they're worthless. And this is supposed to be the person that they love more than any other. We need to remember our love for each other. One of the ways that we can show love for God and one another is by giving something up in Lent. We're asking that... All of our family of faith commit to giving up any kind of contempt in the way that we talk to or post or talk about an individual or a group of people. Now, we can disagree. It's important that we express our thoughts and feelings, but we don't have to uh, lower ourselves to name-calling or personal attacks. We're asking everyone to give that up for Lent. Now, typically in Lent, Sundays, you know, aren't counted. And if you give up chocolate for Lent, because Sundays are a mini Easter, you celebrate by eating chocolate on Sundays. You see the problem. We're asking you to give up all this uh, mean-spirited, if... We're not going to talk hurtful speech about anyone or post it. On Sundays, we don't want everybody to run amok and rip people apart. And so instead, we want to ask you to intentionally seek out someone and give them an encouraging word or a message of gratitude. Tell them what they mean to you. So something positive on Sundays so we can celebrate every Sunday. And also, let's commit to giving up any kind of name-calling or putting another person or group down, even while we're in the midst of disagreement. It's especially important that our loved ones know in the midst of a time of tension, we have never forgotten about them. We've never forgotten our love for them. Now, we've probably all seen the situation of a young child breaking down and having a fit in public. Maybe you've been the parent of that child, Maybe you've seen it and seen times that the parent or yourself handled it better than others. Sometimes that there was room for improvement. Uh, On our last trip to Pittsburgh, there was an occasion where I had an opportunity to read an account of one of those times written by a mother whose daughter threw a fit. And she was writing this letter to Mr. Rogers. I want to read this letter to you. Dear Mr. Rogers, our five and a half year old daughter, Michelle, has an inoperable brain tumor. Our only hope to remove the tumor is with radiation. On the first day of her radiation treatment, she screamed and cried when she found out she would have to be in the room all by herself. She was so upset they couldn't give her the treatment. The next day, the doctor gave us some medication to sedate her. It was supposed to put her to sleep. By the time we reached the hospital, she was still wide awake. We all tried talking her into doing the treatment, but she cried again and said no. We kept saying that it would only take one minute, 30 seconds each side. Finally, she asked me, what is a minute? I know it was by the grace of God that I thought of how to explain to her what was one minute, I looked at my watch, and I started singing. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. And before I could finish the song, I said, oops, the minute's up. I can't even finish Mr. Rogers' song. Then Michelle said, is that a minute? I can do that. And she did. She laid perfectly still for the entire treatment. But there was a catch to it. I have to sing your song every time over the intercom into the treatment room. It is very embarrassing, but I do it gladly for her. By now, every doctor and technician in radiation therapy knows your song. Sincerely, Michelle's mom. When we will rise above the tension we naturally feel in times of conflict or stress, When we will take the high road and truly listen to the needs of the other person to find out what their fears and hopes are, we can love our neighbors, no exceptions. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.